So my name is Rebecca Ayer, and I have beat the often path by creating a life that is attuned to people's pain and carves out opportunities for healing, especially for those who traditionally don't have access to healing. Um, and this is something that's really near and dear to my heart. And it requires me to work within systems, but also to kind of constantly work against them as well and try to dismantle some of them um, so that they work for more people. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I am your host, Ross Palmer. Now, this is the show where we feature people who have found success and fulfillment by thinking and acting outside the box, outside the normal path. The show is a play on words of off the beaten path. In case you didn't know that, I know it's confusing. I'm sorry. My guest today is Rebecca Ayer, who has an incredible story that led to her becoming the CEO of Project HEAL, an organization dedicated to providing eating disorder treatment to groups of people historically denied access. Their own website estimates that 80% of people with eating disorders cannot access treatment, so something clearly is not working. In this episode, I learned the true scale of eating disorders, and it's absolutely shocking. But just as important, I learned how Rebecca didn't truly come alive in her career or in her life until she attached herself to a cause that she truly believed in. And now she's the CEO of Project Heal. So I can't wait for you to meet Rebecca Ayer. Here we go, episode number 66 of the Beat the Often Path podcast. And do you hear I'm in New York and you I know, that's background? okay. We're going to accept that. It's, <laughs> New York is a character that's present yes. in every video and audio recording of the city. So we're going to embrace that and we're going to go with it. I can only hope that there's going to be a jackhammer in a little bit and somebody screaming out the window. Hey! Shut up yeah, down there. That's probably what uh, happened. That's, yeah. that's my stereotype of not living in New York City, but um, it's, it's fine. It's not inaccurate. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Move out of the way. No. Uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry to our listeners. So uh, I love that. I love people who have found ways, like you said, to work within the system, to dismantle a system, but work within it. I think that's a struggle that we all have in our yeah. lives. If we're smart and if we're ambitious, that's something that we all have to deal with. So mm-hmm. I'm very curious about what that means to you. Can you explain to our audience what your mission is and how you got involved in it? Yes. So I'm the CEO of a nonprofit called Project Heal. Uh, We're a national mental health nonprofit that's helping break down systemic healthcare and financial barriers to eating disorder treatment. Um, I'm an eating disorder therapist by trade and in a lot of ways going into the nonprofit space to create equitable access to treatment is off is off the beaten path or uh, <laughs> nobody's going to get it. Most therapists don't receive any training in eating disorders. And if they spot them in their practice, refer them out. Most clinicians aren't trained and don't, and don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. So being an eating disorder therapist is a uh, kind of niche and, and unusual, although it shouldn't be. And that's one of my mm-hmm. missions is to make it a, a baseline aspect of most people's training. But then as an eating disorder therapist, most folks are in private practice and can, you know, unfortunately stay very full um, because the eating disorder, you know, pandemic essentially is so intense in this country. um, And we have a real shortage of providers. Um, And so going into the nonprofit space is definitely an interesting choice, but it's something that honestly, I feel like is the, is the calling of my life. I didn't found this nonprofit. It was founded in 2008 by two teenage girls actually who met in treatment for their eating disorder and realized how many people 
got kicked out early by their insurance or couldn't afford to be there and and kind of how homogenous the eating disorder community was. It was mostly thin, white, young, uh, affluent girls um, who were in treatment. And that's really who treatment has been designed for. And the more that you learn about eating disorders and the more that you learn about um, who has them and who has access to treatment and all of the like egregious disparities, hopefully the more passionate you become about trying to change that. So Project Heal is really the only national nonprofit that's explicitly focused on um, equitable healthcare access for people with eating disorders. And I'm happy, more than happy to get into all of those things, but um, it's essentially something for me, I think as a progressive person who, um, who cares a lot about cultural change and systemic change, to identify the eating disorder space as like one of the most egregious examples of inequity and in mental health care um, and, and to be a leader in changing that and to gather amazing thought partners and um, people alongside me who can actually do something about it. I think we've known in the eating disorder field, we've known that there's a lot of disparity for a really long time, but uh, not a lot of movement has happened to ensure that everyone can access care. And so and, and that's resulting in, in deaths, right? So a couple of statistics to sort of set the stage that I think are really powerful to know is that there are 30 million Americans who at some point in their life will be diagnosed with an eating disorder and between 10 and 20% of those people will ever access treatment. So that means that like oh. 24 to 27 million people with eating disorders that have been diagnosed aren't accessing care. That doesn't even touch the number of people who I'm sure you know, and I know who have major eating issues, but have never been diagnosed because either they don't have access to a clinician to do it, or they're too ashamed, or there's too much stigma to seek care. So I tend to think that the issue is more like 25%, maybe even 50% of the country, not 10%. But even if we go with the assumption that it's 10% of the United States, right? 30 million Americans is around 10% of the US. That's and only 10% of those folks are getting care. We have a real problem. Um, yeah. And another interesting and important thing to note is that eating disorders are the second most fatal mental illness. So second to the opi opioid crisis, we're, you know, eating disorders are, are deadly, um, not only medically, but, you know, a lot of deaths by suicide because there's such hopelessness and the inability to access care. And so am I, uh, am I right in it, thinking that uh, it was number one previously? I, I, I'm sure at I some kind of feel like when was. I was younger, maybe I'm wrong. That well, the was opioid a, crisis is kind new, of a, right. The opioid crisis is a new, newer invention. Yeah. If you've watched dope sick or whatever else. So it's like, yeah, probably prior to the opioid crisis, eating disorders were the most fatal mental illness. And a lot of these things are hard to measure. I think about a lot of people who have passed away that I know of who've had really severe eating disorders whose deaths were attributed to something else um, and their deaths weren't even counted towards that statistic. So again, I think that statistic is underrepresentative. So other important things to know also is like, so I'm a thin white cis woman. Um, so I kind of look the part of, if I go to an eating disorder conference, almost every single person there that's a provider looks exactly like me. And if I'm, you know, in treatment settings, most of the patients have a lot of shared identities with me and you look around and you're like eating disorders must be like a, a, an affluent white female problem. And yeah. that is not true. Those are just the people who have been able to access care. And those are the people who in their own healing have gone into the field. But the fact is that 
um, eating disorders don't discriminate. And not only that, but they're actually worse in marginalized communities. Um, so, uh, you know, binge eating disorder and bulimia are more common among black and Latina women. Um, transgender and non-binary folks are four to seven times more likely to have eating disorders. Jeez. 25 to 40% of people with eating disorders are men or boys. Um, less than 6% of people with eating disorders are underweight. So if you're looking for only like thin white women <laughs> and, and like anorexia specifically, and like kind of people who are afraid of gaining weight, that's a tiny sliver of the population of people who are struggling with food. And, and then when you start to understand kind of some of the origins of our fat phobia as a culture and some of the ways in which our medical system consistently fails people of color, you get really amped up to go, this is wrong. Uh, And then you start noticing things like, why is only 5% of eating disorder clinical community BIPOC or, or queer, you know, you're just like, this is all it's all really, really inequitable um, and and not representative of, of the people who need the care. And so Project Heal helps people get into treatment for free. We provide cash assistance. We help people navigate their insurance. I don't know about you, but I've I'm like I have a master's degree. I I work <laughs> with healthcare and I still don't understand my insurance benefits. It's like impossible to figure right, out by design what's covered, what's the difference between a deductible and an out-of-pocket max. And you know, yep. it's a big mystery. And when you have a mental illness and or you know, you're low income and or don't speak English and or you know aren't educated, that insurance navigation issue is even harder. Um, we also provide free diagnosis and treatment recommendations, which, you know, even a diagnosis in a, in a lot of ways is a privilege. I think I, I mentioned that I think that a lot more people have eating disorders than are diagnosed. And there's a really troubling study that shows um, that presented with the same exact clinical presentation, doctors were 25% less likely to recognize an eating disorder based on a person's race. So like um, in a person with an eating disorder, like a case was presented to doctors and 44% of the time they recognized it. If the patient was white, 20, 20% of the time around, uh, they recognized it. If the patient was, um, Latina and only 17%, they recognized it if it was black. So even just for white folks, right. That's 56% of people with eating disorders who aren't being recognized, but for, for black women, that's 83% of the time your doctors are not going to recognize your eating disorder. And on top of that, a lot of doctors are di- are prescribing diets because they're so fat phobic. They're so convinced that thinness equals health. And if you could just lose weight, then all your health problems will go away, which is <laughs> it's outrageous and ridiculous. And I can get into that too. But imagine having an eating disorder and being prescribed eating disorder behaviors um, right. by your doctor um, and dismissed for that. So I get real riled up, as you can tell, about <laughs> all of the things that need to change. Um, yeah. And it's definitely interesting. I'll dive in a little bit to like the systemic change stuff too. There are people who in progressive spaces that are like, you know, very much anti-establishment and they want to, you know, burn the system down and, um, you know, they're agitators from the outside and we need them so much, right? They drive the conversation forward in a really important way. They call out injustice boldly without, you know, any um, kind of dual concerns. (laughs) And so, I learned so, so, so much from people who are, uh, I think, calling out our systems for the ways in which they're failing. Um, 
And at the same time, right, if we completely abolish the eating disorder field, way more people would die. Um, they're packed, there's wait lists. And I know a lot of people who've recovered from going to treatment. And that's why I think it's so important to actually be healing and, and reforming the eating disorder system and, and creating a new and better system alongside the existing one before we like completely eliminate the thing that exists. Because for people today who have eating disorders, um, you know, they can't afford to, to wait the 10, five, 10 years it's going to take to truly transform the eating disorder field. Um, and so we have to look at things through sort of a harm reduction model, like how can we do as much good as possible and as least harm as possible while we create a less harmful system at the same time. And I think that's kind of a, the dual approach that Project Heal has to take. And it's one that I'm really passionate about. I think as a therapist, now that I'm talking about it, it's like, you know, when you're, when you're helping someone who has like a maladaptive coping skill, let's say someone struggling with addiction, if you just take away their addiction and their coping skill, which they're using probably, you know, to survive, or at least that's why they started doing it. Um, and you don't replace it with any other tools <laughs> or skills or any other, um, like scaffolding to support them um, well, as they rebuild their identity and their way of being in the world, then they're going to collapse and they actually decompensate um, and it gets a lot worse. Uh, and it's, I, I just, I think of that. I think of people a lot uh, when I think about systems um, and I think we just have to hold a lot of tension and duality when we're thinking about these things. So um, in a lot of ways, I think that's my answer for the, like, um, off the beaten path or yes. beating the often path is like, I'm really threading a needle, so to speak, yeah. when it comes to trying to figure out how to solve a problem while leveraging the system that exists for the people who need it, because, um, it's, it's time sensitive, right? This is not, um, something that can be just like, you know, backburnered um right. for a while a lot of folks are like if i don't get care this week you know i'm gonna something terrible is gonna happen Whoa. my sister is in the kitchen and my dog is barking that's at her, great we so got new york we got all kinds of the <laughs> flora and fauna of zoom life that's what we love on the show exactly um, well that is all really awesome there's so many points that we can jump off on i just want to yeah. preface this by saying that i first got interested in this subject in college when classmate of mine showed me this thing on the internet that was a letter from Anna and it was the personification mm -hmm. of Anna and it was yep. it creeped me out so much and I discovered this whole category called thin spiration and I didn't I was in college you know had nothing to do with it personally at least that I knew of and I was I was a dual major of film and English studies so I saw all of this Thinspiration stuff and I was like, whoa, just blown away by it. So I made my senior right. project a creative video where I personified Anna, the voice of anorexia, based on that letter. And I made this video and I had a, a great cast and my friend uh, uh, was, was the star. And um, I made this video and it did very well at the time and a lot of people were shocked. It presented at the School Film Festival and actually won Best Documentary, but... Uh, yeah, which was great, but uh, 
but what Something. I noticed is that like a lot of people were shocked by it as well. A lot, I mean, obviously a lot of women weren't, but a lot of men were shocked. A lot of people didn't realize that it was an issue or at least the scope of the issue wasn't really mm-hmm. uh, available to people at that time. So the interesting thing was, this is like Gen 1 YouTube days. I uploaded this thing to YouTube and I had a YouTube channel then, uh, you know, with like a video that I uploaded. I uploaded it to YouTube and it's by far and away, it was the biggest video that I ever made it clearly struck a nerve, this video. It got hundreds of thousands of views. And if I was smart, I would have capitalized on that or, like, you know, built a channel. I, I, was I wasn't thinking about doing YouTube. But a really interesting thing happened after this video was kind of doing its thing. I realized that people were sharing it and it was circulating. And in the beginning, all of the comments that I got were, whoa, what is going on? People were just shocked. They were really saddened or, you know, interested to learn more. But then, slowly but surely, a different kind of comment started coming in the YouTube section. And people started saying, thank you for this inspiration. Or I listen to this at be- uh, before I go to bed at night. I've downloaded the audio and I use it to motivate me. And I started getting comments like that. And, and in the beginning, it's like it was one or two. But then I started getting more and more. And then uh, other people started coming in and they're like, you need to take this video down. because it's." And I realized that it was having this other effect that I never intended on. So in the end, I made the decision to remove the video. I did take it down, even though it was, you know, doing well or whatever for the algorithm. And it was a really tough decision, but it was just that kind of interesting thing where I tapped into something that I didn't even know that I tapped into on both sides. And I kind of regret that I had to take it down because it was really educating a lot of people that needed to hear that message. But then the harm that it seemed like it might have been doing was outweighing it. So that's my introduction to this world and learning about the severity of it. Yes, yeah, so it was it was pretty wild, um, but it's always um, stuck with me. And that's why I wanted you know to talk to you and I wanted to feature this project on the show because it's still something that we don't really talk about. You know, the old thing about the fashion models, the runway models. We know that it was apparently worse, you know, a decade or two ago when they were like ridiculously thin on the runway and now they're slightly less thin, but still ridiculously thin. So I've just been very fascinated by this as an area because so many people aren't thinking about it and they're not talking about it. Is that your experience as well? Do you think the broader public is just generally unaware? I do think that most people aren't aware of the truth of eating disorders. Um, I think that most people have a lot of misconceptions and, you know, those who don't have eating disorders, like can't imagine how bad it is um, to have one and like what it, what it, the actual experience is. So it's really cool that you've created that sort of immersive experience for people who had never, you know, had that voice in their head. Um, what I think is really interesting though, is I think like a lot of people actually do think about it all the time, but they might not have the name for it. Mm. So um you know, I think that people across genders um, have a complicated relationship with food and a complicated relationship with their bodies. I think there's, it's very, very common to be insecure or self-critical about your body. That's actually the norm in our culture. And if you listen closely, you can hear most people saying a lot of things like, oh, I'm so bad, or I need to do this, or, you know, like a lot of food rules, a lot of um, like self-flagellation about food choices, a lot of, um, 
a lot of scrutiny about body shape and a lot of body comparisons. And I don't think that is limited to people with eating disorders. I think that's just like how our society operates in a lot of ways. What that voice, I I would love to watch that film actually, if you still have access to it. uh, I think I delisted. I'll try to find a link or rustle it up. I mean, this is like in the before, before, before times, you know, like that's like several computers ago at this point. So I, but I, I probably can figure it out. Yeah. But I think there's something about um, an eating disorder, which is in a lot of ways, eating disorders are very complicated, but like one of the things that eating disorders are, I think is kind of an extreme caricature of something that's actually very normal and pervasive in this country, right? This is that time in the episode where we inject a little commercial and a word from our sponsors. Today's sponsor is Project Heal. They didn't pay me a dime for this advertisement, but hey, it's my show and I can decide who my sponsors are, right? Even if I'm prone to making bad financial decisions. So Project Heal is the sponsor unofficially of this show. What does that mean? That means that you should go to their website, theprojectheal.org. Hit that donate button or see if you can get involved. And also, if you know anybody who is struggling with an eating disorder, why don't you send them over to get in touch with the folks at Project Heal? Just maybe they can get some help, or maybe they can help somebody who needs some help themselves. Either way. So, support theprojectheal.org, and now back to the conversation. It's funny you mentioned that it doesn't affect just women, because... I, you know, social media compounds this in my opinion, but you put yourself on camera like we're doing right now. We're putting ourselves on camera and then you're opening yourself up to every asshole comment on the Internet and it's always trolls. And but, you know, even in the early when I first started streaming myself uh, many years ago, uh, people would say things to me like, oh, you gained a little weight or whatever or, you know, uh, like and I. I looked basically like this. I'm like, sure, I have a little bit of a, a pudge around the midsection, but like, I would get comments as well yeah. of like this. And who cares? Yeah, and who cares? I know, and I wasn't board. even like branding myself as a fashion. Like, I wasn't a model or anything like that. Just a person. So the that's, the, the, the judgment that people have yeah. of people's bodies is right. really really intense. And and actually, you know, um, like people who are fat or in high weight bodies, I used fat as a neutral descriptor. I'm not okay. using it as a derogatory term. Right. Uh, there's basically it's the last remaining kind of legal discrimination. Like you can be fired for your weight in this okay. country. Wow. I, I didn't know that. Um, every other class of, of person is, is protected. And there's a lot of really cool legislation in the works right now. There's a um, organization called the body freedom project that's working on making weight discrimination illegal. But right now you can be terminated. You can be kicked out of businesses. Um, and in a lot of ways, like people who would never utter a racial slur and never comment, you know, never say anything homophobic and never, you know, are still openly critical and horrible to each other about their bodies. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, ex- we just think it's acceptable to to notice and observe and comment and criticize each other's bodies because we assume that everyone wishes they were thinner. It's right. a baseline assumption right. of our culture. And I think that what's really interesting is that most people across all diagnoses in some ways have that that anorexic voice in their head. Um, not everyone has eating like anorexic behaviors, right? But most of them are like, you're bad for eating that, 
like how long can you not eat? You know, if you've eaten, you've got to do something to compensate for it. And there's just, and folks who are struggling with binge eating disorder, you know, have like profound shame in most cases about the consequences of that binging if it, if it has resulted in weight gain. And so in a lot of ways, like our culture is really anorexic. Um, do, you, do you think this is more of an American thing? Do you think that Americans in particular have an unhealthy relationship with food in general or is this a global phenomenon? It's definitely global. I think that America is a cultural leader in the world and we create the vast majority of like, you know, mass media. And so our ideals and values and biases seep into like the global, I think, consciousness, especially Western um, and like colonized places. So a lot of indigenous communities and like African communities and um, like certain cultures that have been less influenced by Western society remain actually a lot more fat positive and a lot more kind of intuitive and and connected to the earth and connected to their bodies and like more mindful. I think there's something very, there's a, there's a dark underbelly, I think, to some of the ways that um, like Western colonization has, has, decided that bodies need to look. And actually, if I can go on a quick tangent, something fascinating is that this is actually all connected to uh, racism and it's all connected to um, essentially there's there's a concept of anti-blackness and there's a concept of anti-fatness and they're actually linked. And so a lot of our ideas about health and about bodies stem from the transatlantic slave trade and like puritanical ideas of, um, you know, colonizers as they were going into African countries. And so there was essentially this era where people who were white and like Christian and like right acting and pure and like very over controlled, right. They were like all covered up. They were like prim and proper. They had the nuclear family. They had all of these things like went into these African communities and they saw that they were maybe more sex positive and had more fluid relationships with each other and were maybe more sex positive and maybe had, you know, like larger bodies. And they described those aspects as like savage and out of control essentially, and they needed to be tamed. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it's like our rigidity around, you know, behavior and food and sex has like, stemmed from our from our race relations like going back hundreds of years and then you go even into like the the era of eugenics and essentially like the origin of all of our health textbooks and the origin of the bmi which is widely used to determine health which is a completely racist determinant of health if you actually dig into the history of it it was based on a white man um and it was totally arbitrary uh and there's just so many ways in which like all of our kind of healthism in this country and our obsession with kind of right acting, right eating, right, right, right thinking uh, stems in a lot of ways from like our attempts to sort of distance ourselves from our flesh, from our desires, like to be in control and to have agency. And in a lot of ways, anorexia is like the far extreme of like, okay, you want to take this and see how far this can go? Like, you know, it'll kill you. Um, And that's true, I think, for all of the extremes of like Western civilization, like extreme greed, extreme, you know, it's like extreme vanity, extreme, Extreme. all of the extremes. And it's, it's, 
Yeah. There's a lot of really, if anyone listening to this wants to have their mind blown, there's a book called belly of the beast, anti fatness as anti-blackness, the politics of anti-fatness as anti-blackness by Deshaun Harrison. And it's like, okay, you're going to have to point me a link to that after this. I want to check it out. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that you met. I mean, obviously this is a thought that I've never had in my life. Everything you said is new, but I guess what comes to mind is the body as a product, you know, either literally in terms of slaves or metaphorically in terms of being a model or projecting an image as a product or, you know, Oh yeah. And And it's worse now with social media because we're all, you know, all these content creators, their appearance literally is something that they're selling. Right. And when you divorce a person from their body as a product, then you're critiquing something that's different than the human being inside. You're just critiquing the image or the physical thing. So that is uh, very fascinating, and that's not at all where I thought this conversation would go. <laughs> but you learn something new every day. Um, you know, I guess the real moral of the story is what isn't connected to racism in this country? I mean, <laughs> like, at least in America. What I think in that's- uh, here is not connected, I suppose. Um well, we have a real sickness. Yeah. 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 So there. OK, so you've tapped into a lot of really interesting. I mean, clearly you're very passionate about this and yeah. you've gotten a lot of other people on board as well. There have been some accolades, people, big people, if, I, if I'm correct, uh, Ariana Huffington and some various other people in Silicon Valley have latched yeah. on to this mission. Um, mm-hmm. How have you been getting support for this for the last few years or what has that looked like? Yeah, we're so fortunate to have, you know, a handful of um, really, really committed people who understand the issue, oftentimes because their lives have been personally affected, um, whether they themselves have struggled or someone that they love has struggled. And so um, I think kind of to go back to what you said, too, about like, is, is this something that nobody's talking about or thinking about? I think it's something people are thinking about. Maybe they don't have a name for it, but it it's, you're correct that people aren't talking about it. And right. I think that has a lot to do with shame. Mm. And it's something that I run up against. Um, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes about eating disorders and a lot of um, the people who understand it are don't want to be associated with it. If they've recovered, they're like, I don't want to think about this ever again, right? This almost killed me, it ruined my life. Like I have to distance myself from it. And then those who maybe are still struggling with it are just like, this is too close to home. I, I don't want to deal with this. And so it's like really, really tricky because it's so personal and it's something that thrives in the shadows and it's something that's sort of happening um, underneath all of our noses. Um, and oftentimes we don't notice it until it's really severe. But the way that affects our, our donors is like, we have some amazing, amazing donors who've supported us and a lot of people, you know, um, who make eating disorder like movies and shows come to Project Heal and people yeah. who write about, uh, you know, eating disorders. Recently, I was quoted in Newsweek talking about the show Emily in Paris because there was an episode where they had a celery smoothie eating disorder episode. And huh. interestingly, Lily Collins, who's in uh, Emily in Paris, was also in a movie called To the Bone, which was about anorexia and was really amazing. And Project Heal was really involved in supporting that film. And that was, I think, directed or produced by one of our biggest supporters, Marty Knoxon, who's um, also the producer from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, best show ever. Uh, Yes, you're not alone in that. (laughs) Yeah. And then like Amanda Crew from Silicon Valley is on our board and uh, she's amazing. And her husband, Dustin Milligan, was on RuPaul's Drag Race Canada edition and he donated his winnings to Project Heal. And so you just have all these like, 
totally random uh, and amazing connections. Another one of our board members is the president of the 49ers, Parag Marathe. Yeah, because tragically his sister passed away from an eating disorder. So he is very familiar with this issue and wants to wants to help and sees that he has a unique opportunity to do that as a man in sports and draw some awareness in that. a community that's, that's definitely wonderful. not talking about it. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful to hear. Yeah. So, but you know, obviously we find our people and that's my job is to find our people. And I hope that maybe if you're listening to this podcast and you're my people, call me up, hit me up, email me. Um, but we're getting more and more, I think, um, foundation funding and corporate funding, because as we've been doing, I think a better job articulating what we're, what we're doing, people have understood that this isn't about, you know, like, I don't know, this isn't about a handful of people who need help. This is like a systemic, like really significant problem. And it's a healthcare equity issue. It's a healthcare access issue. And if you can understand eating disorders as an issue of gender equity, racial equity, healthcare equity, and all of these things, then you're going to have a lot easier time getting, I think, bigger foundation and corporate partners, uh, because maybe you don't fully get or care about eating disorders, but you do care about an issue that's disproportionately affecting marginalized communities who are dying as a result of not getting access to care. And so that's been something that's helped us a lot. And um, we're doing some research right now, which I think will help us even more have some like really quantifiable data to talk about what the barriers to care are and who is experiencing those barriers more than anyone else. So that's fantastic. um, I'm excited about this year. We're growing a lot and um, I'm looking for funding every minute of every day. So, uh, yeah, if anyone's listening to this, who's like, I would invest in that. Yes. That matters to me. I would let's, welcome let's do it. Your partnership. We'll, we'll call out <laughs> to the social media universe, but yeah, you, it, for those listening again, and I'll, we'll put this at the beginning, but you know, raised, uh, millions of dollars at this point, a big buy-in from Silicon Valley, Google, Uber, I've read, um, recognition mm-hmm. on Forbes, social entrepreneur, yeah. you know, a lot of good things happening. Uh, but I want to kind of come back a little bit in the conversation because this is a fascinating mission and it's it's profound and wonderful. That's obvious. But I want to personalize this a little bit and I want to talk about your journey because the, the, the chief premise of this show is to show people that more is possible with their own mm-hmm. life. And I yeah. think we've been fed this narrative that you go to school, you get a job, uh, you, you know, you, you, you get yeah. your degree. And then everything will work out. Then you get your house, you get your car, you live the American dream as it was. But I argue that that model is fundamentally broken and it has been broken for a lot of people for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, now people are graduating and they're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and it's not getting any better. And so this thing that we've been sold, it just doesn't work anymore. I mean, maybe for a small percentage of people it works. So I'm fascinated by people who have seen something that impacted them as this has clearly impacted you and they say Mm -hmm. okay this is my mission this is my cause this is what i'm gonna go all in put my chips on the Mm -hmm. table and build something of value not just for the world but also for themselves to build Mm -hmm. a life that they wake up every morning and they're happy to do what they do or they feel a sense of fulfillment and it seems to me Mm -hmm. like you have that so on a personal level how did you come to be where you are what was that journey like for you 
you know, I hope this is inspiring to anyone who feels that they're meandering right now, but it was a meandering path. It wasn't like I woke up and knew exactly where I was heading. Um, you know, I did get my bachelor's degree in psychology and, uh, and I worked at Microsoft right out of college in philanthropy. We were doing our corporate social responsibility and employee engagement stuff. So I was like, had an amazing, you know, first job out of college. And then I realized I wanted to be more directly helping people. Um, and so I went back and got my master's in counseling psychology and started to become a therapist. And I was on a very traditional path at that time. And then I got kind of burnt out after five years of working in a really intense environment um, at a treatment center where I was doing interventions pretty much every day for five years. <laughs> um, and I, I like picked up and moved to New York on a whim and left my eating disorder practice and left my, I, I was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and I just needed a break. I knew I could practice anytime. And I did a bunch of random things like, um, Oh my gosh. I was like a client services manager at a film and television sound studio for a few months when nice. I first moved to New York city. It's random. I was like, I like can anticipate people's needs because I'm a therapist. Maybe I could be like a really good executive assistant. Uh, and so I did something like that and it was not what I wanted to do. And then I started doing like copywriting and marketing consulting. And then I was like the director of strategy and insights at a marketing agency in Manhattan, which is like how I was so underqualified for that job, but it was really fun. I was like applying psychology to a marketing model. Anyway, it was fascinating. And then I left there and I went to a startup, a technology startup that was focused on pet technology, like for dogs because my friend was starting this company and I like writing and I like words and I was the director of marketing communications there. And anyway, this all felt like, where am I going? My resume is a huge mess, but I had known about Project Heal in the past. And a friend of mine was applying to this program director position at Project Heal. And I was like, she, she kept saying to me, you know, um, I'm sorry, their, their pronouns are they, them, they've uh, transitioned to being non-binary. So I need to correct myself. So they said to me, um, you know, you should apply for this job. And I was like, I'm not going to compete with you for a job. <laughs> and then they didn't get the job. And so I, they copied me on their rejection letter from project heal. And I, they said, you have to interview my friend, Rebecca, like she's perfect for this job. And so it was the only job I applied for. And, um, I got it and then flash forward like 10 months and I was asked to be the CEO. And oh. I was like, I mean, I have, again, no business being the CEO of anything. And That's it turns crazy. out I'm actually a good CEO and what? I love it. And, you know, I've been able to like, it's so funny because this job has like culminated everything I've done. It's, it's obviously psychology, it's eating disorders and not only eating disorders, but like insurance and, and access. Cause I was in admissions for so long in eating disorders. And then you know, my experience in philanthropy has come to bear. And I was also a fundraiser at my grad school for a while. So I'm like, have some of that. And then I do a lot of marketing communications and public speaking. And I, you know, at the tech startup, I was doing some like legislation and trying to get a bill passed in New York city. So I've got some like government affairs experience, all of these things that like made my resume a huge mess have now culminated in like being exactly the skills I need. <laughs> and so I'm such a generalist in terms of my skills, but my focus on eating disorders and on, you know, treatment access has been a passion of mine for a really long time. I just didn't know exactly what to do about it. Um, I think I just thought of it as like something that I, I guess 
kept me up at night. And so I guess I would encourage you like find something that breaks your heart and then find out who's doing something about it and go get involved and maybe apply for a job that doesn't seem to make any sense for you or uh, that you maybe feel unqualified for, or maybe you're overqualified for it and you start at the bottom and you get where you want to go. But I think there's so many ways to like land where you need to land that are, I think, unconventional. And most importantly, I think following a lot of people talk about passion and I think passion is really important. I'm a very passionate person, but it's not just about passion. Yeah, it's like it's different. finding, it's like finding the thing that breaks your heart. It's like, if you're, if something troubles you and you're, and it's like, you know, it keeps you up at night yeah. or every time you think about it, you just get like totally frustrated or, you know, agitated. Like that's a, a, one of your values, right? It's one of your core values as a person that's essentially experiencing injustice or isn't Right. And that's like, for me as a very kind of cause oriented person, you know, something that I would recommend to anyone who wants to do something that's cause related. Obviously there are some folks who are like artists and they want to create, and that's not always cause oriented, but if you have general skills, but you don't know what to do with them, like find the thing that breaks your heart and, and take a leap. That's absolutely wonderful. Everything that you just said in that last bit is essentially the crux or my hypothesis. That's the whole point of this show, people. Right there. Everything you just said is exactly what it's all about. Um, because so many people feel that they're meandering, that they're that they're off the path, that they've made mm-hmm. mistakes that they can't recover from. And, you know, we've heard quotes from people like Steve Jobs who say you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect it looking backward. And in some yes. sense, people know that their skills do add up to something bigger, even if it doesn't seem like it at the time. But yeah. in a very real practical sense, day to day, I think a lot of people don't live that knowledge. They feel yeah. scared. And obviously the world of work is just chaos right now. I mean, there's a huge anti-work movement. All of this stuff is kind of crumbling down all around us. But it's so great that all of your skills added up to this thing. And then when it happened, it's fascinating to me how fast things fell into place. You struggle, struggle, struggle. And then one day you find the right thing. And 10 months later, you're the CEO. So it it feels- And I was honestly like a gamble for the board of directors. And I was like, I hope this goes well. And then, and then it just did because it's the right fit. It's It's really, really special to be exactly where you're supposed to be. And I do also want to add going back even a little further that I, you know, I have not personally struggled with an eating disorder, although I've had, you know, bouts of disordered eating as I think most people have, but my mother had an eating disorder. My sister had an eating disorder. My college roommate had an eating disorder. I was surrounded by them growing up. And when I was in grad school, I vividly remember saying, I do not want to treat eating disorders. It's the only group of people I don't want to work with because I just think that it'll be too triggering for me. Right. So I went to this job fair for my internship. And I went to every single booth, but not the eating disorder treatment center booth, because I was just like, I can't do it. And then I ended up doing my internship at this eating disorder center, because I realized that how the reason I was avoiding it was the reason I needed to do it. And, um, and it was like terrifying to me, but it was terrifying to me because I had a deep, deep knowledge of it and a deep awareness of it and experience of it. And, and I would just say that, like, if there's something that you're convinced is you have to avoid because it would be you know too much for you or too close to home. That close to homeness can be the most powerful ingredient in this because 
the things that are close to home are who you are. And when your work is a natural outpouring of who you are, it doesn't feel like work. That I love the way that you phrase that. It's the thing that you're most afraid of. That is the thing. How profound is that? The thing that you avoid is the thing. That oh yeah. I was like, yeah, there, I was like, people That's remarkable. Are difficult. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I it turns out I refuse to do this. Down. I refuse. Yes. I will not flash and, forward. Uh, and then once I was there, it was so healing for me because, you like, know, a lot oh. of the reasons I was avoiding it is because no one in my life to the, at that point had ever recovered. And so I thought of eating disorders as sort of a life sentence that made people very hard to be close to because yeah. that was my experience of it. And then, you know, being in the, the treatment space, I was like, oh, everyone here is trying to heal. Yeah. And I can help them. And it was like profoundly healing for me and my story and my, you know, relationships. And it gave me a sense of power and agency, not power, but like I can, I'm not helpless in the face of eating disorders. I can actually do something about this. And that passion for healing has like, you know, grown from just a one-on-one passion to an entire system, healthcare system. And I think that is like, I feel so privileged and lucky that I, that I found this. That's that's so wonderful. And going back to your earlier remark, I think for me, art and a mission, I, I don't think that they're separate. I think that they're actually interchangeable. In my mind, I respect both artists and mission-driven people equally, actually, because yeah. I believe that art is a valuable thing. And you could oh, say maybe sure. the, the most valuable thing. And so, like Mozart, for example, you know, great art oh, yeah. has the power to change the world. So I yes. think in my personal life, I admire most people who either have a mission or who are artists. That's generally, yeah. you know, and, and what I, I don't admire, I guess I can say is, and, and why I created this podcast was because I don't like this money for the sake of money thing that has, mm-hmm. that is so pervasive in our culture. You know, all the Lamborghini, I mean, we, it's the Instagram cliche, all of that, but just what do you want to do? Whatever makes the most money. Do you care how? No. Sell cigarettes to kill. Like who cares? Right. It's yeah, but I, it's very vapid. There's not much there. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And so it's great to see that, yeah. you know, when we pursue those things that that were that mean something to us, that we can build a career. And that's, uh, you know, I'm sure that the money is fine for you, but I love that that's a secondary thing to the greater mission. Because- yeah, I mean, I will say nonprofit. Life is not a profitable yeah, it's place. Right. Put it right in the title. <laughs> They're like warning you. Non-profit. Sure. Right. Exactly. Forget it. So you're not going to be big tobacco anytime soon. All right. No, We've crossed no. that off the list. Yeah. And I, I want to clarify my comment about artists just because I think it's really True. important because some of my favorite people are artists. It's it's the distinction I was trying to make is like a lot of my work is about outcomes, right? I'm trying to to do whatever it takes to get to a specific outcome. And I think there are other fields of work that are way more process oriented, right. That are more about like, it's not about what you get at the end or where you're going or what you're trying. You don't have a sense of like what the outcome is, but you, the process is inherently, you know, rewarding. Like I think art is an an example of that or even writing. I love writing. I think writers would say it's like, it's the process of writing, not the like, I have to, I have, you know, a, I have an advance and a deadline and I need, you know, 300 pages on this topic. Like that's not art. That's just output. Right, <laughs> um, right. And so I think, yeah, and both, both parties can be very like drip, 
meaning making driven, right? Trying to do something that's valuable and personal. But I think there's like a different focus on the end goal versus the means, if that makes any sense. Yep. Uh, and I'm a little bit of the mind of like, not that I don't care how I get there. I think everything matters along the way. But like, you know, if in 20 years I can get to a place where Project Heal isn't needed because eating disorders are understood and covered by insurance and easily, you know, treatment is easily accessible and Project Heal doesn't need to exist, like I will have accomplished my mission. And then I probably will, you know, retire and go live somewhere and write a book and putz around and have a garden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Living the dream. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly. And I've heard somebody in a nonprofit say that before, that their goal was to not be needed anymore in their role, which is yeah. an interesting sentiment. Um, yeah. Do you feel in your life that there's sort of a demarcation, like the life before you found this path and then the life after? Do you feel that there's sort of an inflection point where one day everything mm. changed or was it gradual? That's such a great question. Um, I I tend to think of my life in chapters and I've had so many chapters and in a lot of ways, the chapters seem kind of disjointed. And so, um, you know, as a therapist, one of my lenses is narrative. And so I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is trying to figure out how, what the big story is that my different chapters are telling. And so I think I'm in one of my favorite chapters I've ever been in right now, because I have such a genuinely meaningful job. It's not to say that I like everything I'm doing. Like I dread you know, the spreadsheets and the, you know, there's like things of, it's not about the tasks. It's like, I care. I give all of the fucks. You can delete that. <laughs> oh, I'm not I deleting. Give, Are you kidding me? I don't care. <laughs> I just like give all of the fucks about this issue. Yeah. And like, I'm genuinely driven by it. And I would, if I could, I would do it for no money because it matters so much to me. Um, I can't think of anything else I would rather be doing. And that it feels really amazing, but it definitely doesn't feel like there was a light switch moment where I'm like, okay, it was more like a process of discovery and a lot of detours. And, um, and yeah, I think that I, as humans, we have this amazing privilege of sentience and we get to, dis, we get to make meaning and interpret our lives and decide what things mean. And like, I'm still in the process. And I think I probably always will be of trying to understand what my book is called. But yeah. this particular chapter, I know what it's called and I love this chapter. What an outstanding metaphor. I love that <laughs> so much. And it's a great way to think about it. I really do think so. And you yeah. get to wake up, I mean, the stats are great. You know, the amount of people that the the project has been able to help. Yeah. Um, you know, how many, God, I read something crazy that reached 180,000 people or something like that. Can you shed yeah, that light was on that? Last, that was last year. This year, 2021, we were able to reach 250,000 people and we were able to help 346 people get into treatment who could not afford it um, and whose insurance wasn't covering it. And yeah, we were able to turn every dollar donated into $3.39 of impact. So if you want to think about like a good investment um, and how to get some bang for your buck, I think Project Teal is delivering on our, our mission in some really powerful ways that are having just a direct impact on people. There's a lot of nonprofits that are about awareness and, yeah. you know, education, like general and, you know, 101 information and Project Teal is a direct service and 
getting people into treatment is expensive and complicated. And, mm-hmm. um, but we're intent on continuing to leverage our limited resources for like saving individuals lives one person at a time. So when you say 250,000 people reached or what, what are we talking about? What's, what's happening there? Yeah. So that's through, we have our research, um, our advocacy and our education. So that's more of our awareness building stuff. So we do different webinars and community education things. Um, basically it's like eyeballs and ears who have been exposed to project Hills mission, um, who are a part of helping us raise awareness in the community. So attendees to our events, et cetera. So a lot of it is trying to measure, like who out there has been able to understand the inequities in the eating disorder space in a given year. And so that's our reach number. And then our direct service number is the 346 people last year. Really? And it, again, in the past, we were helping literally like a few people a year because we were paying directly. And each treatment episode is $80,000. And guess what? You can't help that many people if, you, if you're no. helping them in that way. And so we've really figured out a model that helps us leverage partnerships and um, helps us maximize people's existing benefits or get them new insurance. And there's a lot of different things that we do that are able to get us to a place where now we helped about a person a day, which is, you know, again, with a million dollars, getting 350 people essentially into treatment is bonkers. <laughs> so like the people who have gone through uh, treatment, some of these success stories, what, what have you heard back from these success stories? What have people said? I mean, you know, I, I don't take this personally, but I do take it to heart. People regularly tell us like you saved my life. I would not be here today without project heal. Um, and you know, one of our previous beneficiaries actually just joined our board, um, our board of directors. So a few years ago, I could just cry about this. She was awesome. (laughs) Struggling with an eating disorder, couldn't access care. She was a black woman and had um, an eating disorder that was not being kind of determined as quote unquote sick enough by her insurance company. And we got her into treatment for free and she did the work and followed through and took her time to heal and is now fully recovered and is doing incredible work in racial justice work and in eating disorder recovery advocacy. And she's on our board. Her name is Benita Jackson Turner, sorry, Benita Jackson Turner. And she's so special. Uh, and just, I mean, you just sob if you listen to her story. So, um, it's just like person, you know, a thousand people like, like Benita that we get to just see come out the other side. And so many people who come out the other side, I mean, people with eating disorders have a lot of risk factors, but they also share one really beautiful thing in common. And that it's that they're really sensitive people. Um, and they have a really deep attunement to, uh, the world around them into their inner world. And so when you can redirect and channel that into a healed, you know, space, mm-hmm. yeah, your impact is like watch out world. Yeah. That's so great. Well, we're nearing the end of our hour. I've loved every single minute of this. I do want to say, so if there's somebody out there who's listening young or old, either who is personally affected by this or who knows somebody or, you know, is personally affected by it. What message would you have? And maybe they're uncomfortable talking about it or bringing it out into the open. What would be your message to that person? I would say, you know, tell the truth, tell, tell someone, um, whether that's, you know, if you're, you're struggling yourself, like 
pick one person that you trust and be honest with them about what you're going through. And it doesn't have to be a solution oriented conversation. It can just be the catharsis of, of bringing something out of the shadows. And if it's someone that you love, no, tell someone that you notice what you're noticing. Um, tell someone that you're worried and they might not love hearing it at first, but they'll always remember that you said something, something that I've heard a lot from people with eating disorders is like, I was struggling for all these years and no one ever said a word, no one noticed. And it turns out people usually did notice that they were too scared to say something. And I just think about how many lives could be saved if we could just dare to be a little uncomfortable and not to judge and say, I think you have an eating disorder, but to say like, Hey, I've noticed you haven't been joining us for our dinners or, Hey, I've noticed that you're withdrawn. I miss you. Like, I can't seem to find you when we're talking, you know, like just observing um, where someone is. And again, they may get defensive at first, but they'll always remember someone who was brave enough and loved them enough to see them. So I think telling the truth uh, is the, is the phrase I would share with anyone who's listening, who's resonating with any of this. Well, that's, that's outstanding. Um, great stuff. And of course the website is uh, the project heal.org and that's H E A L like healing. Um, we are at the end of our hour. So I just wanted to uh, leave the floor to you. Uh, is there any action that you would like people to take or any, you know, feel free promote yourself. The floor is yours <laughs> to wrap this thing up. What do you want to say? <laughs> well, if you or a loved one have an eating disorder and can't access care, please go to our website and apply for support. We would love to help you. Um, if you have the means, $5, $5,000, $50,000 and can support our mission, every single dollar makes a huge impact um, in our, our ability to help more people like we say yes to every single person we can afford to say yes to. So you can directly change someone's life by contributing. Uh, if you want to don't have money, but you have time, we'd love for you to volunteer as an ambassador. Um, that's also on our website. So I just appreciate you Ross so much for, for having me today and caring about this story and caring about eating disorders and shedding light on this issue and, and, giving me an opportunity to talk about myself. That's well, always a little fun. <laughs> I, I appreciate you sharing the story. And more importantly, I appreciate what it is that you've been doing. And I appreciate yeah. your commitment to this cause. Um, so I yeah. hope in some teeny, tiny, infinitesimally small way, I can help assist in, you know, in whatever Thank way you. we can. Um, but no, I think Thank it's a fascinating story. Obviously, the issue, again, like, we'll just reiterate it. But the number two most deadly uh, disorder that one can have. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's a big deal. And I think, yeah, maybe I demonstrate my own ignorance about the scope of it by saying people aren't talking about, or, you know, thinking about it, because you're probably right. I, I am just not aware or I haven't been aware of how massive this thing really is. And that's Mm -hmm. the kind of stuff that we have to bring out. And I congratulate you for, for doing that. And I appreciate you. So thank you for help letting for using your platform for good. My it's the least I can do. And <laughs> with that, the official podcast is over. Yet again, that was an episode that had two parts, and that's my favorite kind of story. My favorite kind of story is something that there are two aspects to, two sides to. One side is what is the good that they're doing? What is Project Heal's mission? What are they all about? How can we get more people eating disorder help? That's a very key side. But the other side that we really shouldn't forget here, folks, is the personal side. The personal story of how a woman found fulfillment and how she found career advancement and all of those things that we crave 
by attaching herself to a cause, and that is just as important. The show isn't just about these organizations, although that's a large part of it. It's very much a personal show where I'm trying to show you how people have found meaning in their own lives and money in their own lives. She gets paid to do what she believes in. So it's important that we remember both of those sides when we listen to these stories. And that's the kind of story I hope to bring you. So thanks again for listening, as always. And again, if you could do anything, just go ahead and support them, theprojectheal.org. Hit that donate button, get involved, volunteer, see if you can help somebody else who might be struggling. That's all I ask. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Off and Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer, and I will see you again next Friday. <laughs>